Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. This is the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. I will be your host. If you're new to Leading Saints, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization where we are dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And one way that we do that is through this podcast. And so some nice friend or leader or individual in your life sent you this link and they're like, you've got to listen to this. It's going to be so helpful. And uh, hopefully this is a springboard into many other episodes that we've recorded in our library. I think there's probably over 400 at this point. And so have fun swimming through that uh, archive. But really, probably almost every episode is is awesome. Okay. I'm a little biased, but that's the truth. Also go to leadingsaints.org, check out our resources there, join our newsletter. Also, you know, social media, we do live events and on and on. Just get involved in this community. It's so fun to talk about leadership in the context of the church. This episode, it's a heavy one, folks. But as you know, what we do at Leading Saints, we're not afraid of any topic. We're willing to have the tough conversations, jump in and really figure out how we can be better leaders. We talk with three individuals from The Refuge, which is a a center which is formerly known as the Center for Women and Children in Crisis. They are uh, located in Orm, Utah, and they help. They're a advocacy group, you know what I'm saying, for individuals who have uh, been sexually assaulted. And we'll go into all the details here. As you can imagine, this is a heavy episode. Parental discretion advised. If you have little ears listening, we're going to get into some you know, heavy topics and explanations, and, and it should be Anyways, buckle up. All right. So we talk with Lori Jenkins, Stephanie Heaps, and Bethany Crisp, and uh, really talk about this process. As leaders, how can we better recognize sexual uh, victims or, you know, sexual abuse victims? How can we help those individuals? What resources do we need to be familiar with? And then just little nuances as far as how do we carry out a membership council for somebody who sexually assaulted somebody? And sometimes we need a statement or you know, a witness from that their, that that victim, right? So how do we go about this in a way that's just not going to cause more trauma, more shame, and these things? So obviously, it's a heavy topic. Hopefully, you'll just have grace with us, especially myself. I'm not overly used to having these type of conversations. So just know that I'm trying my best, and I may ask a dumb question here or there, but this is how we learn. Am I right, folks? So here is my interview with Lori Jenkins, Stephanie Heaps, and Bethany Crisp who all work for The Refuge in Orem, Utah. Today I'm in Orem, Utah, meeting with Lori Jenkins, Stephanie Heaps, and Bethany Crisp. How are you three? Great. Awesome. I always ask you all at once. And everybody, sounds like a choir. <laughs> and you, this is the, uh, you all work at the, the Refuge. 
which is a, a how, how Lori lead us off. How, how you you'd be able to describe this better than I am. What is the refuge? Perfect. So it's a nonprofit. Some of you might formerly know us as the Center for Women and Children in Crisis, but to be more inclusive, the name is now changed. We're really excited to be known under the refuge, and we have multiple programs. I know we'll be talking about our sexual assault services today, Mm -hmm. but we also have a domestic violence shelter, and we have housing programs, victims advocates, a lot of different programs that can be helpful for people who are in crisis. Yeah. And so this is mainly focused on individuals who've experienced sexual assault and they, they need a resource to turn to, or and I'm, there's so much trauma in that, that you're sort of that resource to turn to. to yeah. Find help. So definitely we're the community resource that, that can help bridge that gap between medical law enforcement and whatnot. And just we're there to be their advocate. If you go into the hospital or a court case, you have, everybody has their job, but our job is solely the victim and to make sure that their needs and their voice is heard. That's great. What a fantastic service. And and you cover a a handful of of counties in Utah. Which counties? Yeah. So we cover Utah County, Wasatch County, and Juab County. Okay. And it's pretty safe to say across the country, and I'm sure in many developed nations, everywhere there's some type of organization like yours or I would like to say that not not as many places have such a nice organization that can help with all the needs but hopefully they all have something that can be of assistance yeah yeah and and so typically if you in whatever county you are in the the country if you google you know a rape hotline or something yeah they're gonna Mm -hmm. be led to a a certain center like that yep For sure. And I think it'd be just a great opportunity. Obviously, what you're, you know, you're focused on San Fulton counties in Utah, but it would be a great exercise for any leader in the, in the church, wherever you are in the, the country or the world to say, okay, like, do I have one of those centers? I'm going to, you know, look this up and see, see what, what I can find so that I have that, uh, that resource at, at the, my fingertips, right? For sure. If one in three will have some brush with sexual assault, you know someone or you are that person or you're, you're married to that person or they're in your family. So it's good for anyone to become more aware. In Utah, it's the one crime that we are above the national average. Wow. So it's something to really consider. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, you're doing fantastic work here and I'm, it's just encouraging. The more I've learned about your organization and the more we'll learn today, it'll be hopefully a good resource and, and encouraging for leaders here to know that there's help out there because you deal with a lot of sticky, uncomfortable, sensitive sure. situations and you want some help. And so it's good to know that there's, there's help there. Stephanie, what do you do here? I am a sexual assault services coordinator. Primarily my role is helping to manage our volunteer team and to make sure that the paperwork is handled, that the paperwork that we help victims fill out in the hospital gets turned in so that they can receive reparations, crime reparations from the state. So just, it's kind of like a little bit on the back end of it, just making sure that things run. And Bethany, does uh, your job differ much? My job is very similar. So I have the same title as Stephanie, and we both work with training like volunteers and helping to manage the team. I've also gotten to help out with the support group that happens here weekly and work with victims in that way, which has been a wonderful opportunity. Awesome. What a fantastic organization to be involved with and, and doing good work. Obviously, being in Utah County, you know, the church 
culture is more saturated here. There's more members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and so there, I would imagine the just the dem- the way the demographics are laid out, the victims that you interact with have a Latter-day Saint background, and that brings some interesting questions and some guidance that we might consider as uh, lay leaders in the church to better help, and just as members in general, right? Just knowing that these resources are available, and I just think of that moment where maybe a, a young women's leader, you know, in two years hears of something happening, and they'll in the back of their, her mind she'll remember this this conversation and know that there's a place to reach out. So. Stephanie, let's start with you as far as just we're going to go through some general guidelines. We'll reference the handbook from time to time. And, and, and I think from your perspective, it's just going to be helpful understanding maybe some of the areas, the blind spots we have as leaders. You know, we weren't uh, brought up or trained as, as sexual assault advocates. And so we may do things that are not so helpful when, when we, at the end of the day, we just want to help. So how can we, where's the place to start in, in this discussion? For sure, the best place to start when someone shows up to disclose to you what's happened to them, start by believing. That's the church's position as well. That's in the handbook. The church says, it says, church leaders should take reports of abuse seriously and never disregard them. And I know that there's, we always get kind of pushback of like, well, what if, you know, it's not true? Like, what if they're just trying to get back at someone? That's almost never the case. Less than 5% of reported sexual assaults are false accusations. So the bigger problem to me is the number of people who aren't coming forward, aren't reporting, because they don't think that they'll be believed. And so you, in the role as a church leader, are in a position to change that. The first person that they talk to can really set the tone for their recovery. And so if they meet with you and you believe them and you you have to be clear in communicating your support and your belief to them. It's not yeah. enough to just not say something wrong. Like you have to be very clear. And we'll talk a little bit more about specific things that are helpful to say, but just believing them and supporting them is the best, absolute best place to start. I think another. And let me just add to that, that it's very typical. Like in these moments, I, it's almost like our nature, our brain wants to figure out the problem. Like it wants to be judge, mm-hmm. jury, and ex- executioner in that moment. Right. And so, we try and, and solve the problem when in reality, just by starting from a, a space of believing them and them seeing like, oh, wait, like this priesthood leader, this Relief Society president, they're believing me like this mm-hmm. is encouraging, right? Yeah. Like regardless, I mean, there's a whole system and we have our whole judiciary process of that it heads that way that's going to figure out those details. But in that moment, that's just, there's no harm in, in starting there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think the big thing with that is remember what your role is. You are not the police. You don't have right. to solve the crime. Yeah. You're not the judge. You don't have to decide if it's true. You're a spiritual advisor. And what your role is, is to connect them with Christ. Yeah. And no matter what they've gone through, that's the most important thing. And that's exactly what you should be doing for them. That and, will and, help them the most. And one thing that to point out, we'll talk about it throughout our discussion, is that that individual who's been, who's experienced a sexual assault, is so buried in shame in the moment, right? Like they need Christ at that moment as as much as possible to begin to remove that shame. And so when they walk into a room or they walk into an interaction with a leader looking for help and all they leave is with more shame, I mean, that can be so discouraging. Yeah, it's very damaging. That's That's a big thing to remember is they already feel those things. They already think they have done something wrong. 
but they haven't. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not a science statistic, but I'm pretty confident that 0% of victims ever have chosen to be victimized. Right. <laughs> and so there's no need to punish them or jump to like discipline or anything because they didn't make the choice for what happened to them. Something terrible happened to them. They didn't choose it. And so it doesn't affect their worthiness or their worth at all. This is just a trauma that's happened to them and they need love and they need support. Yeah. I think one thing to highlight here is that I don't think any leader listening to this is thinking like, you know, they, they meant to do handle these things poorly, right? Every, every leader wants to help. I mean, that's obviously, but it's so, sometimes in just like you talk about being clear in communicating your belief and support, like when you're almost not proactive in that moment, they interpret it as something else, right? So just starting from believing and then being proactive and, and offering support and, and belief in, in those things, right? Nice. Anything we're missing with as far as just starting to believe, start with belief in, in what they're telling you? One thing probably that we can just add to this is when someone is first coming to you, disclosing what's happened to them, and maybe there is something that, like a commandment was broken, there is something that maybe would require some counsel or discipline in that regard, that's probably not the time for it. Right, yeah. And obviously we'll talk we'll talk about sort of the victim blaming that, that happens at times where, you know, what were you wearing? Why were you in that room? You know, but, you know, this this individual may have been drinking, you know, and, and they were, that's just what they do and that you didn't know that. And so to focus on the drinking that moment or, you know, that sort of ties it into the assault of them being a victim, which has nothing to do with it. I mean, people drink all the time and that doesn't mean they're going to be a victim, right? And so just focusing on the the trauma they're experiencing and leaving that stuff, we'll, we'll get to that down the road if we have to, but it, right then is not helpful, right? Awesome. Awesome. Bethany, what about you as far as, you know, launching into this conversation of a victim is, is never to blame. And, and again, this, these are things like, well, no, duh, like who's doing that, but it's in the, in the nuances that this, these victims are interpreting blame coming from a supportive person. Exactly. So just like Stephanie said, the first person they tell and the way that they react can really set the tone for their recovery. And so not only is it important to let them know that you believe that the assault happened and you believe what they're telling you, but that's also not the time to ask them, like, what were you wearing? Were you drinking? And so you have to realize that the victim didn't choose this and consent to kiss someone is not consent to sex, right? Mm -hmm. Consent Mm -hmm. to drinking, like you mentioned earlier, is also not consent to sex. And so same thing with what they're wearing, right? Just because they might have been wearing something that someone might describe as provocative, that is not consent. Mm-hmm. And Can I jump in with something right there? I think it's helpful to mention that if you are reacting that way and your instinct is to like have those questions, that's normal too because when something scary like that happens, you kind of want to figure it out in your brain so you know I'm safe. Be like, oh, well, they did this and I don't do that, so I'm going to be safe. And so it's kind of natural you're for... you're talking from the perspective of the leader or... Yeah, from, from a leader. If you can explain why what happened to them happened, then the people you know and care about and yourself, they're safe because they're not going to you know drink or do whatever. Okay. So your brain is kind of trying to explain it so that you feel safe, but it just is damaging right. when you go down that path. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so the leader, and this happens in other contexts as well, they think, well, you know, I dated several individuals during my dating years and I didn't even get close to these these scenarios, right? And so maybe there was something, you know, you were in the backseat of a car and in the woods, like, what did you expect to happen? You know, that type of thing, with, which 
again, leads to the, you're focusing on other activities that aren't directly related or don't give excuse for the assault to happen, right? Exactly. Thanks for that, Stephanie. Right. So rapists cause rape. It's not what they were wearing. Newsflash. People people are raped in burqas, right? Like the most modest thing you could imagine. Minors can be raped and they're not asking for it. And so it can happen to anyone. And so just like our brain will try to figure out why did this happen to them? But just like Stephanie said, that's not going to help them heal. And, you know, that attitude also, if someone in your family might hear you have that attitude, they might not feel comfortable coming to you and you know, they might not expect you to believe them if that is the attitude you might have had. And so it's important to just show that you believe people. Another big thing that goes with victim blaming is uh, many times people will question why they don't fight back. But the brain and the body's natural response can be fight, flight, or freeze. And what we see most often is the freezing response. And yeah. that's not something that they choose to do. That's their body's way of keeping them safe. Yeah. And so sometimes the body will think, if I just get through this and instead of fighting back, then I have a higher chance of survival or you just, you just freeze. And so it's very important to realize that just because they didn't physically fight back or they didn't scream as loud as they expected they would, that, that it isn't rape, that it isn't their fault. It still is the rapist who's doing yeah. this to them and they didn't give consent. And so freezing does not, give you something to blame them for, right? right? They're not guilty. Submission is not consent. Right. And many times they will feel guilty, right? They will think that like, oh, I always thought I would fight back. I always thought I had my rape whistle. Like I thought I knew how I would react in a situation, but you never really know how you're going to react. Yeah. I'm just thinking like a scenario where maybe an individual even, you know, spends the night at this individual's apartment or their apartment. And you think like, because we, we Hollywood these circumstances, right? We think, oh, well, what happens? It's a dark alley. This, you know, creepers. The involved. man in the bushes. Yeah, yeah. the man mm-hmm. in the bushes. And then the, the the woman runs out of there screaming for police or whatever. But a lot of these times it's so subtle and and, they, and then they freeze in these scenarios and we think, well, you spent the night there. Like, why didn't, why didn't you run and things like that? And so again, our brain is trying to figure it out. Like, why did you act this way? And at the same time, the victim's brain is trying to figure this out. Like, yeah, you know, you're right. Like, why didn't? And then what happens? All that shame floods in. Like, oh, I must be broken. Like, maybe I did want this. Like, maybe it was part of my fault. Or And that's what, that's not helpful place to be, right? Hollywood doesn't do it right. Because <laughs> right. On so uh, many reading <laughs> everyone's paperwork and having the statistics, especially for Utah, it's, 90% of the time they know the perpetrator. They might not always know them so well. Maybe they've gone on one or two dates. Maybe they're in their ward. Maybe it's just an acquaintance at work, but usually they know them. Yeah. And that adds other elements of shame right. and like, I should have known. I should have known better right. kind of thing. Yes, yeah, that's, that's uh, difficult. Then anything else, Bethany, with, with yeah, this section? Something else I want to point out is that, you know, when we're defining consent and looking at what happens, that many times coercion can play a part. And so someone might feel that they would be in a dangerous position if they were to say no or if they were to fight back. And so if they are fearing, you know, if there are threats being used, if they fear for their own safety, if someone is pressuring them with money, right, because marital rape can be a thing as well. If there's any sort of that pressure, fear, threatening, that is not consent, right? Just because they had sex after that was the situation, that has already taken away their ability to freely give consent and to willingly give consent. So that's just something else I wanted to touch on. And lastly, we started talking about like 
the fact that you freeze, but there's something like called trauma brain. Oh yeah, we we'll so, definitely want to talk about this. Right. And so when there's an assault that's happening, your body and your brain are going to be affected because your brain will flood your body with adrenaline. You're not going to react the way you think you would, right? Because I think so many times we'll take like safety classes and I know, you know, BYU and high schools will teach like great prevention techniques and things. But when you're in danger, your brain will kind of shut down and you'll start to process information differently, not the same way you would if you were in a calm situation where your life, you know, you didn't feel threatened. And so something else that happens with this trauma brain is that you're going to have a hard time recalling the memories of what happened later on. Mm, And so when they'll tell a leader or a family member about what happened, they might have a really hard time remembering all of the details. And when they tell the story, the detail, the order might change. And that doesn't mean that their story is suspicious. That doesn't mean that they're making it up. That's just what happens when you have a traumatic event like this happen. And so that's why their story might come out jumbled and it might not fit the same storyline that you would expect it to. And so just because a victim's story doesn't seem as clear as you would expect doesn't mean that they're making it up. That's just important to remember that it's a result of the brain's response to experiencing trauma. Yeah. Or that trauma may manifest itself in other contexts, I would imagine, where I think like, yeah, they had this episode at work and then, you know, I saw them, you know, discipline their kid in a very strange and inappropriate way at church. And, and we put all this together and we kind of think, think they're just sort of crazy and so mm. we yeah we need to get them help but they seem to be making stuff up you know and and so it's easy that trauma just impacts life in, in general and so then our normal brain wants to do the calculus and think yeah i think they're just mentally ill or something and and this probably didn't happen right right and when they're telling this story it's very common for survivors to remember what it smelled like or one small little thing that their brain might have know focused in on more like sensory type memories first exactly exactly so even though they might not be able to easily tell a linear story of what happened to them they often will remember examples of like what they could hear in the background you know was what song was playing like there are certain little details that they might remember and sometimes people are like well if they can remember that why can't they remember every detail of how they got to that situation yeah but that's just trauma brain. Yeah. And that's really helpful because I just think in a scenario where maybe a, a youth leader, you know, is uh, a youth is opening up to a youth leader they trust about this, this assault. And, and just to know, like to pinpoint, oh, this isn't adding up, but a trauma brain. Okay. I'll keep listening. I'll keep encouraging. You know, it's just so helpful to understand some of these basic concepts of what happens in the brain of a victim. You know, anything else, but then we cover that section I pretty well. I think that covers All it. Right. Yeah. You guys are all outlined here. I mean, I, we should do a course that I can give <laughs> my future interviewees. So, Lori, maybe let's talk just about, uh, you know, one thing I always appreciated as a bishop or as a leader is just having sort of a, a file in my brain of things I should say. And I could just default there because we think, well, maybe I should share a scripture. And then I'm like, oh, no, that didn't go well. And maybe I should, But just having sort of some things to say. So w- what would you encourage a leader to say to a victim? Reflective listening is important that the majority is just to listen and let them go at the speed that they would like and not not be needing every nitpicky detail mm-hmm. on everything. The biggest thing is to just say, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Like to have them feel that I hear you, I see you, I acknowledge your mm-hmm. pain in this. And to recognize that they already feel so much guilt and shame involved in this because we think that we should have been able to tell, we should have known. And so definitely we don't need to add any of that because they are, they are coming with their own shame and guilt. 
And just to let them know that they didn't deserve this, even if there was additional things, like you use the example of drinking, that certainly didn't say, they didn't wake up that morning and say, wow, I'd, I'd really like to be sexually assaulted today or raped. To just let them know that Heavenly Father loves them and is mindful of them and just there for help. To f- try and find out what is most concerning to them and how you could be of help. Sometimes you're the first person that might hear from this individual and just asking them, have you talked to anyone else about this? Sometimes they might want help telling a parent or a loved one, but it's just finding out how you could be of service to them and asking the questions. I, after a rape or a sexual assault, two weeks later, I'm able to call the victim and check up on them and see if they would like resources. We have free therapy, we have free groups, classes, and whatnot. And a lot of times I'll end the conversation asking, in this whole situation, what what could have been more helpful for you? And a lot of times it's one of the first few people that they talk to. If they started asking those questions down the road, they felt blamed or whatnot. And a lot of people really do have a hard time with, because they're going to their ecclesiastical leader trying to find out, am I to blame? It really is a real focus for them because they're like, they'll know if I'm at fault. Or many of them may be going to the bishop's office. In their brain, they're thinking, I'm here to confess a sin, right? And it's up to that leader to sort of shift that thinking like, no, 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 no. There's no sin here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and then that meeting doesn't come about them repenting. It comes about, it's about them being supported. Yeah. And getting help. And a bishop is everyone, every county, every area, at least in the United States, has access to services. Yeah. They might not be the exact same as our services here, but become acquainted with that. Domestic violence, sexual assault, things that can affect a person's life and their recovery is so affected by church yeah. leaders. And I would imagine, like, I, I'm just thinking of a typical scenario that I, I saw myself or, or others where, you know, maybe that individual goes to the to the bishop or really site present for whatever reason, and they have this great conversation, and maybe the that leader's listening to this episode and is, is avoiding all these pitfalls, and they get to the end, they're sort of like, they feel uplifted, maybe they've shared some tears together, and then they... They think, well, are you going to be okay? Yeah, I'll be okay. And and even in the person's brain, they think, I think I'll be able to handle this, right? But I would imagine in that scenario, it's really important for the leaders to say, hey, listen, there's this refuge organization. Just give them a call. We may have a blind spot. We may be missing something. And then when they call you, they you can maybe point out some resources, point out some experiences they're having so that they think, oh, yeah, I thought I was okay, but you know, you've told me A, B, and C, and that's exactly right. I do need some help, you know? So really to yeah, refer to a, a, for sure. for a resource like this. And that day, Kurt, they might be okay. Right. That but week, then tomorrow happens. That <laughs> week might be solid, yeah. you know, but sexual assault is always a roller coaster ride and you go through so many phases of, of I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm sad, I'm depressed. A lot of sexual assault victims end up suicidal. Yeah. So it's something to consider. So let's get them the resources when they haven't hit rock bottom so that hopefully that doesn't happen and that they have a clear map 
a road to recovery and how beautiful that is that, that the church can be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And especially when probably jumping ahead, I'm going rogue on our outline here, but um, <laughs> the, especially if there's a rapist involved, you know, an assaulter mm-hmm. who could do this to somebody else or whatever, like it's important for them within the first, you told me zero to six days mm-hmm. to go get an exam. Right. And, and yeah. go through that process because it's one thing if you're okay and great, maybe you'll move on and won't have it, experience any trauma, but this person is still out there dating or doing other things that, that may impact somebody else. Right. For sure. So zero to six days from when it happened, anyone can go into any emergency room. You just show up and you can tell them I was sexually assaulted. And some people think that they might have to have made the decision of like, do I want to go after this person? Do I want to prosecute? But that's that's only such a slim component yeah. of that. And you can decide that later. Exactly. What they want to analyze, and as a bishop or as a Relief Society president who's thinking clearly, who doesn't have trauma brain, if you can put them in contact with those resources, I'll tell you what a code R is what they call it, a code R exam. Is that is. an acronym for something? or It's a rape exam. Okay. But usually, like, if they're... Speaking over the speaker or whatnot is not like well, uh, yeah. rape exam. We have and, a rape exam yeah. <laughs> yeah, type thing, and, and now it does include sexual assault because not everything goes completely to to rape. But this exam, it's a head to toe like a physical exam from a doctor. But what it's done, it's done with specialized forensic nurses that have additional training, so they're in the hospital. Our volunteers, our uh, victims' advocates go and sit with them and help them along the way so they're never alone, even if they decide that they don't want to bring someone to the hospital with them. So they have the head-to-toe exam with the forensic nurse. She's looking for any bodily injury. We want to make sure that they're physically safe and okay. And then after that, they do collect evidence so that they would say like, hey, did he or she choke you? Was Did this happen? Did you scratch them? And then they would know to look under the fingernails. They would know to swab the neck. And that code R kit, you can restrict it. So that victim has the option to say, I want this to not be able to be opened unless I say so. So they still have a lot of control, which is super important after a rape or a sexual assault that where they've had their control taken away from them, that that be given back to them. Yeah. And then they offer a full set of medications, medications for AIDS, gonorrhea, sexually transmitted infections, the plan B pill so that there wouldn't be an unwanted pregnancy with that assault. And just for those that uh, have a red flag when you say plan B, that's not an abortion procedure. No, not at all. If there was a pregnancy that was already implanted and started, it would do absolutely nothing. If there wasn't already a pregnancy, it would just make everything slippery so that one wouldn't happen. Right. So for, for sure. But all of that in the state of Utah is free of charge. Yeah. And so there's a grant and they use, it's called Crime Victims Reparation. They use the funds from criminals that pay fees. Oh, yeah. And those funds are used to help assist 
other victims. Yeah, and I would imagine yeah. I'd hope most states have something like that, but it would be worth a the you know if you're in Oklahoma, you know, yeah, maybe, find make out. some phone calls for sure. Yeah, for sure. And because it's so again, they're they're. There's so much shame involved. And so walking into a hospital, the, the last thing you want to wonder is like, oh, can I pay for this? Oh, maybe I can't. Or I, I got to feed my kids. And so how, how can I do this? Right. Like, no, just walk in there, get it done. And there's, I'm sure, some type of resource that, uh, or, you know, the bishop himself can write a check for by all means. Right. So. Exactly. I've been in a Kodar where we've had a college student who said, I almost didn't come because I didn't think that I could afford this. Wow. And so it's important that that we let resources be known because we certainly want them to be safe. We don't want a sexually transmitted infection to stay with them for the rest of their right. lives. Yeah. So, and it, let's just get it taken care of, make sure that they're safe, that that's not something else that needs to be added. Yeah. Anything else in the uh, section of uh, helpful things to say? Yeah. Just, just let them take the lead and, and let them tell you what the, what they feel comfortable at that time. and. That if they do tell you something, that it it stays confidential unless they're asking for your help to be able to approach someone else. Maybe they don't know how to tell their parents or how to tell someone else. Yeah. 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 So and, take their lead. And do we get into as far as reporting? Just, so let's if, go there. if they're a minor. Uh-huh. Yeah, a bishop or whomever, yep. they would be required to, to yep. report that, right? By law, that that needs to be reported. In fact, everyone, not just bishops, everyone in the state of Utah, it's a mandatory reporting state. Uh-huh. So even when we handle the crisis calls, we have a crisis line. We need to let them know that if if you're talking about a minor, that it needs to be reported. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not exactly their jurisdiction to report. It would be the victim. Right. And this is where, you know, we always overemphasize that the handbook and the the legal line. I remember several times as a bishop calling the legal line and just sort of chuckling like, okay, listen, this probably isn't a big deal, but I'm calling the legal line because I want to off my conscience. Right. So here's the situation. And I talked to, you know, legal counsel that walked me through it and he gave me the direction I needed and I felt good. Like, you know, I took all the steps here. So overuse that, these resources. Yeah, the resources are yeah. there, please. Yeah, yeah the know. church does have a lot of good resources. They have that legal line. There are others like a counseling line, right, to connect you with yeah. counselors. And yeah. then also they have, for members of the word council, you can access some counseling resources that are really pretty good. Yeah, and, so, and we talked about this in my interview with the Unique Foundation there's a whole a website about uh, sexual assault and abuse, and there's all sorts of uh, resources that will point you to there. So, and that's interesting because I remember one scenario uh, as a bishop, an individual, uh, you know, th- it was a situation where uh, she was dating this this man, and and uh, you know, an assault happened, and she didn't want to report it. And of course, I called the legal line and did all that, but and I was sort of like, no, like you really should, like, <laughs> I mean. He could, you know, this could happen to other women and things. And so what do I, what do you do when they just sort of say, I don't want to report this? I mean, I think it's important to remember that like they had control taken away from them when the sexual assault occurred. Mm -hmm. And so now the biggest thing we can do is make sure that we give them the control and let them decide what they want to do and not pressure them one way or the other. 
And I think sometimes we think like, well, obviously, I know before I received training and everything, I always thought like you have to report this, right? Like this is to help like that would help you get justice that will help protect others. And we don't realize, I think, how hard the process can be and how it can like re-traumatize them to have to retell their story and how sometimes that isn't the best choice for them, considering how hard it is for one of these cases to go through, how hard it can be to prove that it was a rape. And it can just be a very traumatizing experience for the survivor. And so the biggest thing we can do is give them the resources, right? Help them decide if that's something they would want to do, but not pressure them and to just give them the control back. Yeah, I really like how you put that in the context of control because you sort of feel like, well, I'm the bishop here. Like, I'm, I'm going to save you from this horrible situation. So, no, you you need to report this. We, we've got to take action, right? And But again, you're taking away control and that's, uh, and then the trauma brain ignites and I'll, you know. It's not but a lot helpful. of times they will report. Yeah. But it's just a little bit later. Yeah. And then they're strong enough and they're mentally clear enough. Right, right. And so we would love for them to go to the hospital and make sure that they're okay, but then let them decide on the other, yeah. you know, let them have that time and have that clarity because if they're already teetering and they're kind of cracking and then we add, you know, a lot of extenuating things, let's say it does go to court right, right away. And then you've got lawyers who for the possible perpetrator who need to discredit that person. And so it's not always like, let them do that in their own time frame when they feel strong enough, because when they're strong enough, then it goes well when they're not. And that's where it's hard with some moms or some dads or a boyfriend or someone that just loves and cares about him. It needs to be their decision. Yeah, because I mean, a father wants the death penalty tomorrow and we're going to, you know, take action. For sure. Yeah. And I appreciate just the clarification on that hospital visit that, you know, going to the hospital doesn't mean you're reporting anything. So let's just go to the hospital and go through that exam. And You can even uh, go through that exam as Jane Doe. Yeah. Wow. But let's get them the help because right. we want them medically okay. We want them to have that, the choice of the medications. We want them to be able to have that. So really, when you're talking to them, you can let them know of services. You can advise them, but really ask them what's most concerning to them and how you can help. Those two questions, Mm -hmm. they are gold. Write them down. Keep them on your desk for sure. Go ahead, Bethany. Um, So what Lori was talking about, how at one point they might not be ready and they might later on become ready, I feel like that might be a good time to talk a little bit about rape trauma syndrome. And Mm. so it's a three-phase response to dealing with sexual assault or rape. And so... It's important to note that the phases in this last different amounts of time for different people. So it's not going to fit the same format for everyone. Phase one is the crisis. And so in this phase, that can last, you know, the first day, it can last a week, it can last, you know, however long. But they might come to you during this time. And if they don't want to report during the phase crisis, then, it, right, it's important not to push them into doing that because they're still in shock. They have a lot of emotions that are going on. And so at that initial point, that might not be the best time for them to feel pressure from a bunch of outside sources, right? So Lori said they might not be ready at the very beginning. And that's just because it can take a few weeks for the victim to realize what has even just happened to them. And it's really important to make sure they receive support during that initial phase. 
the second phase is the initial adjustment. And so that's when there's a lot of denial. There can be depressive episodes. There can be all sorts of issues. Many will try to like avoid it and pretend like that never happened to them. And maybe during that time, they feel like they're doing great and that it's behind them. But they, And their leader feels like, oh, they're making progress. Exactly. This is going great. Yeah. Right. And they want to be doing great, right? They don't want to be depressed and be the victim. But so sometimes they'll try to avoid the fact that they're dealing with all these emotions and pretend that it didn't happen. And so they're just in a really deep phase of denial sometimes. And so it's also important to realize that just because you think they're doing great and healing that they might still need resources and that they might still need to just be checked in on. And then phase three is where there's like the resolution phase. And so it doesn't, they're never going to forget about it, right? They're never going to get over it. But that's when they're realizing how to deal with these feelings and learning like healthy coping mechanisms and everything. And sometimes this is the phase when Lori said it might be the best for them to go through with legal action if that's something they choose to do because now they're doing better. They're not in a really vulnerable, well, they're still vulnerable, but they're not in as vulnerable a place as they might be during in like phase one or phase two. And so that reorganization will end in some sort of resolution and the problem won't go away, but the victim will view the assault as like a challenge in their life that they've overcome and not something that, and they might still struggle. They'll still have PTSD sometimes, right? It won't go away, but that might be a better time to address things like that. And I really appreciate that. Not that, you know, you might refer to all those phases and you think, how am I going to remember that? But it's really not necessarily you need to memorize these phases, but just being aware that there are phases, right? And so it may be three months after the assault and you may think, oh, this individual is doing great, wonderful. But just always remind yourself, well, I'm not sure where they are in this phase, so I'm just going to be patient, make sure that resources are always there and, and keep things going. Yeah, and it's not always linear. So sometimes they might mm. be like phase two, but then they're back in phase one. You know, like it can yeah. move around. The There's emotions. a trigger or something that sends exactly, them back. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So just because they think they're doing fine one day, that won't always be the case. The uh, that's really day. helpful. Awesome. Bethany, should we launch into as far as uh, some good guidance on what not to say? Definitely. So I think a lot of times the things, you know, that we go over with what not to say, leaders might have asked this in the past and they probably weren't trying to damage the victim. I don't think any leader is just like, how am I going to make them feel bad about their assault? Right. Right. And so it's important to realize that, you know, you have best, you had the best intentions, but there are certain things that are not going to help them heal. And so... Questions that imply blame are things that are seen pretty often. So like, why didn't you scream? We talked about this a little earlier. We know the science why they didn't scream. But it's important to not ask, like, why did you go to their place at 11 p.m.? Or why were you hanging out on that date after midnight? I warned you about that, to bed at midnight, right? And so things like that are not great things to say. Same thing with what were you wearing? So we talked about the victim blaming, but it's important to avoid those questions and make sure you don't suggest in any way that they're responsible for the assault. And then also don't ask questions just to indulge your curiosity. Because Stephanie talked about how sometimes we, or leaders, or just like anyone who is being told of this effect wants to figure out like, why did this happen? If we can figure out why it happened, we can figure out how to avoid it, how to keep our family safe. <laughs> and this is sort of the, I don't know if this is a spinoff of like the popularity of these uh, crime dramas or real life what do, you, what do you call True them? crime. True crime. Thank mm-hmm. you. Right. You sort of like, you listen to these podcasts and you're like, I've listened to a podcast about a serial killer for 12 weeks now, but I can't wait for the next episode. Right. So you sort of get in this mode where you're like, well, then what happened? Oh my goodness. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to be empathetic, but it's like, no, you're like re- helping them relive this trauma again. It's not helpful. Right. And, this, and there's right. no information that's going to help you help them. And sometimes leaders might ask questions that are very invasive and don't really need to be asked 
Something else that I want to throw in here is that sometimes leaders have asked this, and I don't think it should often be asked. Leaders will ask it, or even a victim might come and say, I feel guilty because, you know, there was sexual arousal. This happened, you know, Mm. and I feel like that means that I wanted it. But it's important to realize that your body reacting the way your body was made to react does not mean that you gave consent. And so just because there was sexual arousal, um, that doesn't mean that positive emotions were associated with this. This is still going to be traumatic. It doesn't mean that consent was involved. And it just means that your body reacted the way it is wired to react. And so that's another thing that when, you know, a survivor comes forward and is giving details, if that was a detail that they chose to include, it's important to make them realize that just because your body reacted the way it's supposed to react doesn't mean that you gave consent or that you're responsible for what someone else did to you. Your biology is just working as it was intended, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then lastly here, just make sure that you do not share any details with about this or the fact that it happened with anyone that they have not given you permission to, right? Like Lori talked about mandatory reporting, but you can encourage them to come forward and tell family and friends, but don't pressure them into coming forward and telling family and friends because there might be other factors that they haven't told you about. Either they're worried that their family will view them differently or, you know, for whatever reason, if they are choosing not to tell family members or others, as much as you might suggest that, don't push it, right? Because it goes back to giving them control. Yeah. You're giving them the control of what they want to do with their legal options. You're giving them the control of what they want to do with family and friends. And yeah. so you should just feel honored that they came and told you and that they trusted you to tell you. And so, you know, sit with them, yeah. you know, in that space and like respect that and don't pressure them into yeah, telling others. Uh, from what I've learned about trauma in general is that a lot, you know, a big help with trauma is connection with people and, you know, safe connection, these things. And so, you know, the leader may suggest it and encourage it because it, it could really help. And if they're open to that, like, great. Yeah. Who, who, who do you feel safe with? Who can we uh, reach out to have more, you know, it's not just you and the, the leader, mm-hmm. but there's others involved. But at the same time, if that is totally not comfortable, then, you know, okay, I guess I should not push that. Right, and you can give them like hotline information, other yeah. people to talk to if they don't feel comfortable maybe telling a parent or something, someone that you think they should tell. And who knows, maybe they'll end up telling them later, but that's not that shouldn't be your initial reaction of like how can I get them to communicate that with their spouse or however that goes down. That's yeah. not your job, right? The first thing is just to believe them, to support them, and the questions Lori asked were great, right? Like how can we help you with this? Like what are you struggling with? And so I think many times our reaction is to want to fix things and um, whether it's family, friends or a church calling and we want to fix their problems and come in and be the hero. And that's the best way to do it is just by believing and supporting them and allowing them to make the decisions. Yeah, really helpful. Lori, we talked a little bit about this before, but I want to make sure we didn't miss anything. As far as the next steps go, we've talked about the the zero to six days as far as the, the hospital exam, the CODAR exam. Anything else we missed in this section that uh, we need to hit on? I think it's important. I know that we've referred to male, female, that many times it is a woman that is sexually assaulted, but we need to remember that it happens to the male population and especially in what Bethany was talking about, that your body reacts and that may be something that is very shameful for a male if their body did react and can have them questioning quite a few things. And so it's even, it's so important that 
that we acknowledge that and that we even explain that to them because they're looking at ways to shame themselves. Everybody kind of turns and says, this has to be my fault. Like, what did I do and stuff? So I think that that's really important to remember our male population and that they're definitely at risk for this, even though it might not be as prevalent, it's much more prevalent than we would like it to. And centers like yours have those resources for yep. men as well, right? And, uh-huh, yeah. for sure. And really, sometimes we like, okay, I don't know exactly how to help you, but you need to be in therapy right away. It's the same thing that your when your brain's in trauma, therapy is the best maybe a month or so after when, they're, when their brain's kind of settled down a little bit and they can think um, a little bit more logically. And so it's great to offer the services, but then if they don't um, take those right away, uh, to offer them again later because the situation might be different for them in that roller coaster ride. Yeah, really helpful. And one small comment based on what Lori said. So we don't just serve like women victims here, right? There are children, there are men. And um, something else that is important to know is that those who are like loved ones of those who had a sexual assault are also affected if they've been told, right? And so many times, you know, let's say a woman is raped, her spouse is going to have a lot of feelings about that as well. And so there are therapy services that they can, you know, receive as well, classes and everything for the friends and family because it can be traumatic for them as well. Even though the assault didn't directly happen to them, it happened to a loved one. And so it's important to validate what they're feeling as well their emotions. Sometimes it might be anger. Other times it's guilt of why didn't I protect my child? And so there's all sorts of different emotions that could be happening there. And so if the survivor, the victim has already told, you know, their parents or their family, then that could also be another thing for, you know, religious leader Mm. to let the family members know about. There are resources for the victim, but there are also resources for them as well. Yeah, Yeah, we have classes, therapy and things that they, I mean, you have a dad and he's like, I didn't protect my daughter yeah, or I wasn't able to protect my son. And there's also shame involved in that. Like I should have known about the coach or, or the young man or the young woman. And so it's important to get those services for secondary loved ones. Sometimes a victim won't go get services, won't see a therapist or whatnot. But I still suggest for like parents or a husband or a spouse, because you can help do therapy through you in knowing how to best handle or treat. So it is great to suggest that or offer that. That's really helpful because oftentimes these situations are so traumatic and it's obvious who the main victim is. And so we often assume trauma sort of happens in this vacuum. But in reality, it impacts so many people around the victim as well. The entire and, family. And for a leader to be proactive in being aware of that could really heal a family. In the sure. So. Right. That's why, like, for our weekly support group classes, we invite them to come with friends, family, loved ones, right? Because some choose to come on their own, but others might bring a spouse. Others might bring parents. And what I learned is that so many times the secondary, you know, the friends and family will talk about how many of these things that they learn about are so helpful for them as well, not only with helping their loved one, but with helping them process their own trauma and guilt. And and so all of these resources are just as beneficial for them as well. Yeah. 
Stephanie, you're going to help us through as far as uh, obviously when when an assault happens, especially, you know, like you said, statistically, it's typically someone that they know that they've known for a while. And so what follows is oftentimes that individual has to go through a membership council, rightly so, right? There's uh, some things that need to be addressed to that that membership council. And uh, as is the protocol, a lot of times there may be, a, uh, they may call for a witness uh, from the victim or a perspective for them to share, write a letter and so forth. So you've gotten some, you've written down some great helpful tips on when a membership council is involved, what should we consider? So launch into that one. Yeah. So like we've said, 60 to 80% of all sexual assaults are committed by someone that the victim knows. It might be a relative, a friend, a neighbor. So this means that as the church leader, you might know that person and you might think, oh, but I thought they were such a good person or, oh, I had this or that idea of them. So it's just important to remember that the church's position and just like the general good position to have is support victims. They're the ones. We should not have to say this, but we will say it as many times as it takes, right? Support the victims. If a membership council is going to happen, just be mindful of not re-traumatizing the victim. So in the past, victims have been asked to testify at their abuser's membership council. That can be in their ward or going to this other person's ward and testifying. And that's really scary. And it's really upsetting, especially if it hasn't been explained to them. I think not everyone in the church really knows what goes on, how those happen. And if you're maybe a young person and you're asked to go in this room with a bunch of men, some of them you might know, some of them you might not, and you have to tell the worst thing that's ever happened to you in front of the person that did it to you, like that's really scary. That's really, that's really re-traumatizing for sure. So as I read through the handbook in preparation for our conversation, it seemed to me that the recommendation now is maybe more leaning toward like maybe having them write their experience and send it as a letter. And then if I remember correctly, the bishop of the victim would then read that at the council and it can be kept very confidential. They don't have to just name the victim, but just. And I would imagine that, you know, in the, in the production of that letter, you know, in, involving maybe their therapist or, you know, they don't go in this room and, and write this letter. So yeah. they can, don't worry, I'll read it. But yeah. that, even that process can, a lot of support could be helpful. That. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Do it with a therapist, do it with a supportive loved one, whatever you need. And just to do it with the least amount of pain, to do it in a way yeah. that is supportive and it's not going to. That safeguards. Yeah. 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 So I th- there are, it does seem like there would be situations when a person would still come and testify, but just always proceed with care and remember the victim in all of this. Make sure that they're going to be okay to talk about these things and explain what's going to happen to them so that they know as much and can be in control of as, of as much as possible so they're not just like thrown blindly into this room and you know like make sure they know what's going on. Always protect their identity. Yeah, make their well-being a priority. And remember that the victim is allowed to have a support person in a disciplinary, no, their membership councils. In right. a membership council or any other time, if they're coming to meet with a church leader, they can. They're yeah. always welcome to bring someone and have another person there with them. Yeah. And, and don't assume they know that, right? You can say, "Hey, next time you come or whenever, like you're always welcome. If you want to bring someone with you to sit in here with you, like I'm happy to do that. You know, let's uh, make sure you feel comfortable and safe, and we're here to help, right? Yep, that's awesome. 
Well, this has been uh, awesome, and I can't believe with interviewing three people, I'm still under 60 minutes. This is a, a world record. <laughs> you, you are so prepared, and uh, but I'll, I'll somehow push it past the hour mark. But this is just so helpful. And uh, again, like this isn't the one-stop shop for everything you need to know about these things. Reach out to organizations like yours. Uh, look them up in the area. Uh, have them on speed dial. I mean, that's one thing that when a, a bishop or a leader is such a strong resource, that brings so much hope. Like when it only takes the bishop five seconds to find that phone number rather than, oh, that's me see, I got to Google it. What was the name? I don't know. You know, like, and it's like, oh, this is, this doesn't happen that often, I guess. Or, you know, it can, just these little things that uh, bring more shame than, than not. But I wanted to kind of close just to illustrate how easy this is to miss with, with the situation I dealt with as, as a bishop. I was in inner city Salt Lake, South Salt Lake, and uh, the single sister in my ward, wonderful sister. I mean, wonderful. We're still friends to this day. Just fantastic individual. And uh, she was formally married. Her first husband was not a great guy. And that led to the, uh, you know, there was some abuse there and things. And, and so that marriage ended. And so she was living in my ward and apartment and she was having a tough time, you know, staying up with life, the demands and rent and things like that. And so she kept turning to this ex-spouse to, hey, I need some food. I need help with this. And this ex-spouse would they would be happy to do do that, but it was a very manipulative situation that, that I found out later. And I kept telling her, like, you know, you don't need to go to him. Like, I've got this checkbook of sacred funds. I'd be, you know, you tell me what you need. We'll get you what you need, you know, rent or food or whatever it is. We are, we're here for you. That's what, what the structure of the, the church is. Well, over time, this individual was involved with intercourse and had sex with her, her ex-husband on several occasions. And she came to me as if like, I've really screwed up, you know, and on the surface, everything looked like, yeah, you know, you did, you know, let's talk about it. And of course I was very open and, and wanting to help and, you know, we'll, we'll figure this out. And it got to a point that I decided to organize a, a disciplinary council. That was what it was called at that time of this membership council Had my uh, bishopric uh, there to help me. And it wasn't until we went through all that process that it suddenly hit me that, Oh my goodness. Like she thinks she's sinned. I think she's sinned. But now that I put all the pieces together, she's in a very abusive relationship and she's being assaulted. You know, she's being manipulated into these these situations. And I remember just that sweet moment. And and this is where there may be a, a leader listening, thinking, ah, oh, man, I, I've, I've screwed this up. Like I've made some mistakes and I've, I've said those things on that list that you're not supposed to say or whatever. Like there's always time for the leader to go back and say, I'm so sorry. I have not handled this correctly. And we're going to figure this out until we do handle it correctly. I remember in that, in that council, just stopping and saying, I just want you to know that I've, it suddenly hit me that uh, none of this is your fault. Like we shouldn't even be here. And in fact, we're done here and you continue on and, and you have full membership, whatever, like there's nothing that we're considering here. And so again, like I could go back and relive that experience. And in no place did I make this huge mistake of like, well, you're victim blaming now, Bishop Frank. I'm like, you're missing it. Like they happen so subtly. And so that's why you have to create space and just better understand these situations, create resources and things. Cause you all may be duped by the, the perpetrator, whether it's the victim or the leader. And, and, uh, and I never even met the guy, but so it's so common that these situations accidentally happen. I'm so grateful I had that moment to apologize to her and say, I really miss this one. None of this is your fault. You've been abused and got all sorts of resources that can, they can help you. And so there may be some of those conversations that need to happen. Any final thoughts 
or things that we should touch on? I just love that there are so many resources out there that people can take advantage of. I loved that you said, take a minute, look them up in your area. And if you live in Utah County, Duab or Wasatch, we're so here to help you. And we do have great things that are all free of charge. I know that wards have access to therapists and whatnot. Become familiar with those. And then just like you said, pause for just a second and analyze the situation of, is this really their fault? And just take that time because you may save them such a road of misery and just shame where this healing process can get started quicker just with therapy, with different options, with a kind listening heart. And so lives can be changed. Stephanie and Bethany, I want to give you two a last word as well. Just what final encouragement would you give to leaders who you, we know you're, they're trying and they're doing their best and yeah, they make mistakes just like I made, but uh, what final encouragement did you have? I mean, we all need Jesus, right? right. Amen, sister. <laughs> so if you make a mistake, it's fixable. Yeah. All mistakes are fixable. Awesome. Bethany? Well, the last thing I want to add is just there are church resources. So just like Lori said, it's not like it's your job to figure this out all on your own. There have been church talks. I know Chika Okazaki, who was in the Relief Society, you know, General Relief Society presidency for a while, has given talks on healing after sexual assault. Her books, she talks about it too. And so there's plenty of resources to look for. And what I loved about the way that she would always talk about it is she would always focus on how the way that we need to respond to these things, even if it's like, you know, through calling or as a friend, is just try to be the Christ-like, you know, example. And we can learn from Christ's example, the way that he reacted whenever people would come to him in situations where they felt shame. And so it's really important to just emulate that example and maybe take a step back from just like, you know, it's important to study up the handbook and all the resources, but take a step back and look at what you can say and what you think the Savior would say. And if you're doing that, then you're probably going to react in a very helpful way. And so just with the help of resources and education and just being Christ-like, that'll allow you to make a big difference in their lives. That concludes my interview with Lori Jenkins, Stephanie Heaps, and Bethany Crisp. Man, I was just so impressed with these ladies and their depth of knowledge, their perspective, how they answered questions. And just throughout the whole interview, I was thinking, wow, like I wouldn't even have thought to ask that question or to consider that dynamic in, in all of this. And, and now I know it. And now we can all know it. And hopefully at some point you're going to be in the middle of one of these situations as, as hopefully a rescuer, as someone who can lend help and resources. And hopefully information from this episode will help you be better prepared to really lead in those circumstances because these are crucial circumstances, right? I mean, we've got to offer help and effective resources to these individuals so that we can, we can stop the pain, help the recovery, and diminish any trauma that's left over from these, these dark uh, experiences. If there's any other angle, perspective, thought, um, individual who I could interview, you know, I really want to build a strong, a strong library of these types of episodes. And I really think in our, in the near future, we'll probably do some type of virtual summit where we can really do a deep dive on these things to help leaders be better prepared to lead victims of, of sexual assault. 
And so I would love to be connected to resources to do that. But if you do anything today, if anything inspires you from this episode, hopefully it is that you will, after the end of this episode, you'll go and reach out and figure out what are the resources in my area, right? Get familiar with them, put the numbers in your phone, record the the email or the the website addresses, whatever you got to do. And even go, go pay a visit, walk in there. I'm sure anybody that works in these organizations would love for curious people to walk in and say, I just want to be familiar with the resources in case I need to help somebody and, and refer somebody. So check it out. And I remind you once again to text the word lead to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.